Hi, my name is Michelle. I'm an alcoholic. Um, welcome to everyone who's new and counting days and, and anyone else. Hi, Pablo. I see you waving. Um, I always forget that this meeting is being recorded. So to anyone who's listening, hello as well. Um, so I just started off with, I have a sobriety date of June 16th, 2016. So I'm coming up on seven years next week, which I'm really excited about and kind of nostalgic about. Um, I just really love the reading that we did beforehand, just the more about alcoholism and how I had tried all these different methods to stop drinking and just couldn't stop drinking. And um, yeah, I hit a really, really, really low bottom before I got here and lost everything. I was homeless. I had lost custody of my first child and things were just really bad. And to kind of really fast forward to present day, like my life is completely different. And that doesn't say that I haven't had my struggles because I absolutely have had my struggles. And, you know, when I, like I said, I first got in here, I didn't have custody of my oldest daughter who just graduated with honors last weekend. And my life is just completely different now. I was able to finish school. I am in an amazing relationship with my fiance who we share a daughter with. And she's one, I mean, she's 15 months, so she's just so cute. And I get to be present in a way that I wasn't present with my first child. And you know, I just, like I said, I just couldn't stop drinking. I would drink and drink and drink and drink. I'm also an addict. So there's a lot of drugs in my story. And I'm just so grateful that my life isn't that way anymore. And I really owe that to finding a relationship with my higher power and by doing the steps. And I've done the steps continuously. I'm, I'm back in the steps and my sponsor is like dragging me through the steps so slowly. It's making me so annoyed. But um, I'm going through the steps again and we're going really slowly, like literal line by line in the big book, like pulling me through each line. And it feels really tedious, but I'm also really grateful that I can go so slowly through the steps because I do remember the first time that I did them and it's so different each time I do them. So um 10 minutes is a, is a short amount of time, but I just want to like speak to like the miracle of step one, two, and three, especially because that's kind of where I'm sitting in my step work right now. And um, I believe there's someone that's unmuted. Um, but I just, you know, step one is really just came to believe uh, that I was powerless over alcoholism. I guess it's not came to believe. I just mixed up one and two, but um you know, I was definitely powerless over alcohol. And I knew that when I got into these rooms and I knew that as I was walking through step one and, and then step two is really, like I said, a second ago, coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And when I was first new, I didn't believe that that was true. Um, I didn't really believe that coming that I could ever be sane or anything of that matter around alcohol. And, um, you know, I'm not tempted by alcohol at all anymore. And I remember the first 30, 60, 90, 120 days just being so challenging. I was shaking physically and like completely unable to see how I could do this for one more day. And I just kept thinking like there was no other option. Like my bottom was so bad that there was really just no other option. And 
And then step three, just making a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I, you know, I, I didn't know that that was something I wanted to do. So I just said that that was something that I wanted to do so that I could start my fourth step. And um, my first fourth step really was like where I got really down and dirty with all my resentments. And, um, and then it wasn't until I started making ninth step amends that I really had like a psychic change around the program, around the fellowship, around my sponsor. Um, actually, after my first uh, A-step, I ended up finding the sponsor that I've been working with ever since. So I went all the way through one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then something happened with that sponsor that made me decide that I needed to find a sponsor that I trusted. And so I started working with the sponsor that I currently have. And, um, and it's been hard. Like COVID was really challenging. She moved to New Jersey and we started doing zoom and, you know, as you guys all know, like there's really great things about zoom, but there's also like this level of hiding that I can do in zoom. And I find myself at meetings often now, still, even after meetings have opened up and just sitting on zoom meetings kind of in the background. And I've been known to be pretty outspoken. So being in the back seat on meetings has been really different. And, um, I don't, I don't really see a problem with it. Truthfully, I feel like I'm in this space right now in my sobriety where I'm just kind of like taking the cotton out of my ears and putting it in my mouth and really trying to sit back and like listen for the solution. And right now I'm getting that. And um, I go to about four or five meetings a week. I really want to start going to in-person meetings again, but I just don't have the courage to do it at the moment. I, I don't seem to find the time as my life has changed as a result of doing these, these steps and working through the process of, of the big book. I really, I have a really full life and truthfully at like six o'clock at night when I've gotten off work, I don't want to go to a meeting <laughs> in person. I'd much rather just log in and see all your beautiful faces online and you know, and that's been really working for me. And um, I don't really know what else to say other than, you know, if you're new and you're struggling, like I've been there, I struggled for a really long time in this program. Um, and it really works if you work the steps. That's been my experience. Work the steps, work the steps, keep working the steps, get honest with your sponsor, find a sponsor you really trust, do the work, pray, rely on your higher power and your higher power will like relieve all of these things from your life that you didn't even know were blocking you. If I had sat down and thought about like, what was my dream life seven years ago, I don't think I would have ever dreamed up what I have right now. And I'm really happy and content in my life right now. And I, I never really thought that that, that to be possible. I mean, I have my own struggles. Like I definitely think that like struggles with food have become an issue for me, especially after COVID and having a baby. And so there's some shame around like the way that I look right now, which also keeps me from going to meetings in person. If I'm being completely transparent and rigorously honest, you know, I, I do struggle with that, but 
at the same time, I know that I can come here and get honest with you guys. And I've continued to do that over the last seven years. And when things get really funky in my life, I always know that there's a place that I can go to. And, and I'm really grateful for that. And uh, yeah, I just, I just want to encourage anyone. Is that two minutes? Yep. Yep. Okay. That is, I'm going to end there because I just don't even know what else to say. <laughs> I'm really grateful to have had this opportunity and, and um, I'm excited to hear what Jorge has to say. And again, welcome to the newcomers. And if you don't think this program works, like it really, really works when you work it. And that is my God honest truth. And I never thought I'd be the person like drinking that tea. And once I drank it, I was like, oh my God, this shit really works. Like, yes. So it works if you work it. And, um, and it's hard work. Like, I don't want to minimize what it's like to do the steps and stay sober because it is hard work. So just keep at it. And um, thank you for allowing me to be of service. And that's all I got. Hi, everyone. My name is Jorge. I'm an alcoholic. Really grateful to be here. Thank you, Laura, for asking me. Laura and Dean, I love you both very much. Um, welcome to any, any newcomers who are here. Uh, it's really nice to see some familiar faces, people I really care about. And uh, Michelle, thank you so much for that that share. That was a beautiful, beautiful share. And I really related to a lot of it. Um, <clears throat> my sober date is June 10th of 2018. So today I have five years and I'm really amazed at that beyond just being grateful. I'm actually just really kind of taken away. Um, and so I would like to share what happened and what it's like and what it's like now. Um, and also a very special happy birthday to AA as a whole, which started June 10th of 1935. So it's a, it's a very important day for all of us, really, because um, 88 years ago, something happened between Bill Wilson and Robert Smith that made all of this possible. Um, Dr. Bob, I mean, Bill W. and Dr. Bob. Anyhow, um, I, I guess I, I just want to start at the beginning. Um, I, I want to say that I don't, to qualify, I don't know, I don't remember when I took a, a drink the first time or the first time I got drunk. Alcohol just seems to be, from the beginning, like a part of my life. I was born in, in San Francisco um, and uh, in like downtown San Francisco. Uh, my early childhood, I remember, I mean, I'm the youngest of five, and it was pretty close, uh, close space together. Uh, there were seven of us in a studio apartment, if you can imagine that, uh, very tight quarters. And um, what I remember is like the, the environment, San Francisco at the time, there were a lot of dive bars uh, outside of my home. And so I, I remember that as a kid, like walking to school, going next to these dive bars, like really kind of seedy dive bars. And so um, not necessarily being attracted to that, but just accepting it as a way of life. And then within the home, uh, my father drank. Um, my mother was kind of, I would say like codependent. There was a lot of codependency in my family. Um, but I, looking back, like, it's more complex than just, oh, there was just alcoholic dysfunction. I mean, there was a lot of love. There was a lot of love and chaos. There was alcohol and codependency. It was really close quarters. 
uh, I have a very early memory of being sick. I was either three or four and my mother uh, giving me like a shot of brandy. And, you know, I, it was just kind of like an old fashioned thing that people did. But I remember uh, kind of looking up and seeing my siblings almost like hovering above me cut with smiles on their faces. And it was almost like a, a rite of passage. I don't know. It was like I, I associated basically alcohol with something good at an early age. So I was like, wow, this is this is that conviviality. This is that harmony. This is that. OK, this is something kind of special. Um, but if I think back to my earliest drink, I mean, I was either three or four or something like that. Um, but in terms of family and, and like early, I'll share something. Um, growing up, I was taught a few things that uh, later on kind of played an important part in my life. Specifically, I was taught early on to uh, not ask, don't ask, don't feel, don't tell, don't trust. And where there's a will, there's a way. And to explain, I was taught, don't ask certain questions. Like, why does my father drink certain ways? Why, why are things the way they are? It's like, that's not important. Don't ask, don't worry about it. Don't feel, don't feel certain emotions. For, uh, for a man to feel vulnerable, to be sad, that's a weakness. Vulnerability equals weakness. I was taught that at an early age. Um, don't tell people. That was another one. Don't tell. Don't tell the outside world what's happening inside the family. What happens inside the family stays in the family. Um, and then don't trust. Stranger danger. Don't trust people on the street. Or don't trust people. All of those were very basic like survival skills also that I can look back on. Like it, there was stranger danger. Downtown San Francisco in the 90s. Are you kidding me? There were wolves everywhere. And so you really had to be careful because I was walking alone from school at eight years old, a latchkey kid. And so you definitely didn't trust people um, and not telling like family secrets to the outside. Yeah, that makes sense. At the same time, as I'll share later, it, it made trusting people, uh, being vulnerable, uh, asking questions very difficult as an adult because those seeds were planted very early. And then, of course, there was that that uh, that kind of thought that where there is a will, there is a way. Self-sufficiency is enough. Self-knowledge, self-sufficiency will get me through. And if I have enough will, I will find a way. Um, and again, that made asking for help or looking for a solution outside of myself later on in life very difficult. I don't hold this against my family. I don't hold this against my parents, I, I really don't. And, and it's taken me time and working through uh, accepting uh, people as being people, not superheroes, not parents that I put on pedestals, just people who are complex and going through their own things and have their own histories to understand that this is, like, it is what it is and it was what it was. Um, but basically that was kind of like early childhood and so alcohol in the family, like early drinking, like I didn't really have too many um, repercussions, but I do remember in high school, uh, there was the first few times of really kind of experiencing consequences of drinking outside of the home. Because within the home, it was like, look, just don't drink, pause alcohol. 
right? Like that was what we called my dad's pa, short for papa. Um, and just don't drink his alcohol. That's it. Like do what you want, but just don't drink his, right? Um, but I remember I was I was a part of like this nonprofit um, that that helped high schoolers go travel outside of uh, outside the country during summers, and I got drunk and I thought it would be fun to go to the office there and. Um, I just, I don't know. It was just one of those things like early on, I was like, oh, well, maybe it would be fun to go do this drinking, you know? Um, And I got into a lot of trouble with that. And I just remember looking back, like I was 15 or 16 and that being like one of the first times where I can really think back on a consequence of my drinking because I was almost kicked out of that. And um, it it had allowed me to travel. Like I was able to travel in high school to uh, countries outside of the the United States. Um, And during traveling, one summer between junior and senior year, I was in Tibet. And um, that was a very spiritual time in my life. And I just remember a lot of the students, it was a group of us and we went out and got drunk. Uh, we went out drinking. And I just remember the next day, like everybody was like, okay, I'm done, that's fine. And and I remember wanting to go out again. And a few of us did, but I remember being called out by somebody and he said, Jorge, you just want to go out and drink. And I felt that kind of like shame, like and anger at them. Like it's a response. Uh, like, who are you to tell me that? Like, screw you, you know, but looking back, it was like, oh, okay. I already had that kind of reaction where maybe I knew inside like, hey, I kind of drink differently than other people, but I don't need you to tell me about it. So keep your mouth shut you know and so when that happens when somebody actually says that it elicits a real feeling of guilt and and um and kind of anger uh towards that person um i mean we i we kept going and you know the trip continued but i just remember feeling that like that feeling it it gave it created a response within me and i must have been like 16 i was 16 years old so um you know i graduated high school and um went to college. I went to UC Santa Cruz and there was a lot of pot smoking there. Um, but I think even early on, I can remember there was alcohol. And when I drank, I drank, I didn't drink like other people. My first drinking experience in college, I had alcohol poisoning and, uh, I was good at bringing people together, but once they saw how I drank, I began to be ostracized from the groups that I helped to kind of bring together it's pretty interesting looking back at that. I think as alcoholics, a lot of us are very charismatic and we have strong personalities and our drinking, I know for myself, has a tendency to also kind of push me away from people or push people away from me, even though uh, there's part of me that that is attractive to people. Um, and I think a lot of us go through that. I've noticed that and hearing other people's stories definitely was my experience. And I almost dropped out of college. Um, I just I can look back and see that um, my drinking, even though it wasn't constant at that time, it was it was a lot. Um, so long story short, I graduated college. I I I great I majored in theater arts, so I liked to act on stage. I like to perform. I don't as much. I, I don't anymore. But at the time, I did a lot. And I moved to New York after college, and uh, I wanted to act on Broadway. I ended up acting off Broadway, off off Broadway. Um, I was a part of a theater company and it was, it was great. It was a great time. 2008, 2009, um, acting on stage was great, but I also felt like I wanted to, uh, 
I needed to drink before. I thought that was okay to drink before a performance. And I remember, again, like another person asking me, another actor went up to me. I remember this came up after me, after a performance came up to me. And he said, Jorge, uh, I'm just wondering, man, did you drink before the performance? Because we had this scene where we were face to face. It was a pretty intense scene. And so we're, we're it's a tense scene and we're, we're really close to each other. And, and to his credit, I mean, he was very professional about it. But I can only imagine looking back like you're on stage with another actor and you're smelling alcohol while you're performing. Like that's kind of a, a shitty position, excuse my language, but that's that's an unfair position to put someone else in. Uh, to put someone else in that position from me, from my perspective. That was that was very selfish of me. And of course, I denied it. I said, no, no, I didn't do that. That's not me. And he he could read through the lines and he could read through my BS. But again, to his credit, he just said, okay, all right. So you're saying you didn't? I said, no. And um, I just remember that, you know, that kind of denial, denial, denial. That's been kind of a, a, a common thread. In, in a lot of my drinking and the consequences is to deny it. Um, and so in New York, you know, it worked out and then it didn't work out. And I moved to the Bay Area and I moved back to the Bay Area, to the East Bay. And basically I've lived on and off in the East Bay since 2009. Um, and at the time, um, basically I was working um, a few different jobs. And to me, it wasn't until the consequences added up that I really thought, oh, there's a problem. I remember working at one job and, and going to work and it was always uh, kind of like chasing a, a, a dragon, right? That that tolerance, like tolerance is, is, is a kind of baffling thing unto itself because every time I drank heavily or drank to get drunk, my tolerance would increase, but I didn't want to black out, but I wanted to get to that nice buzz. But every time I did that, my tolerance went up. So I could never get to that same place because I always had to drink more. And that led to some uh, some pretty, uh, let's say, difficult times <laughs> uh, in, in job situations. Um, and I remember like in 2010, I, I must have been, I think, 25 or something like that, um, going to work and, and I drank too much because usually I could go to work enough just drink enough but that time it was too much and my coworker, he was shocked he was like why are you doing this how can how can you do this and i said what what's the big deal why why are you making such a big deal out of this it's not a big deal he's like it is a big deal you shouldn't do this you can't do this and uh it's it's interesting like to look at to look back at other people's responses or reactions to my drinking when I thought it was so normal, like, oh, well, whatever, it's a rock star lifestyle. And it's like, I'm sorry, Jorge, you're not a rock star. <laughs> you know, like, that's not, you know, that's, you're not, you know, you're, you're a person working at Pier 1 Imports, you shouldn't go to Pier 1 Imports wasted. Um, but I, I'm an alcoholic, right? That's, that's what we do, essentially. Um, so, in 2011, there's something I want to share. Uh, in 2011, in May of 2011, my grandmother passed away. And I remember going to Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska, to her funeral. And a lot of my extended family was there. And I was on basically like a three or four day binge of just drinking. It wasn't always blackout, but it was a lot of, of, of drinking. And 
up to that point, I don't know this, maybe they already knew, but I don't know that my extended family knew the extent of my drinking to that point. But at that time, they did find out. Now, if you remember, growing up, one of the biggest rules was don't tell the outside family what happens inside the family, keep it inside the family. And I feel like I broke, I felt like I broke a cardinal sin, a cardinal rule at that time, like a family rule, because because the extended family knew now about my drinking. And I felt a lot of shame. I felt a lot of guilt. And so I actually stopped. I stopped drinking for, for a year and a half from May of 2011 to October of 2012. Um, and I, I didn't, I wasn't abstinent from all substances. I definitely was still smoking a, a lot of marijuana because in, at no time did I feel completely comfortable being myself. I still had to get outside of my mind, but I, I, I felt like, you know, that that's, I don't want to drink. I don't want to drink. And uh, there was no idea to me, there was no thought of going to AA at that time. I had no desire to go to AA. And I really had no desire to stay abstinent, to, to stay um, to stay stopped. I just was taking a long break. And this is mentioned, what we met, what Suzanne read earlier. I mean, and, and in the doctor's opinion, in one of the early chapters in, AA, in the big book, Dr. Silkworth mentioned, mentions this, how people will go for a long period of time and then start drinking again. And they'll think that they can safely drink because they've had that time of abstinence. And that's exactly what happened to me. I went a year and a half without drinking. I was just smoking weed. Um, and in October of 2012, I was in Austin, Texas at my sister's wedding. And I felt like, you know, it's been a year and a half I can safely drink again. Like it's it's fine. It's been enough time. I'm okay. And I was there with my girlfriend of the time. And uh I just remember like one drink, one 12 ounce bottle of Bud Light led to two, led to three, led to four. And that night I'd already had four. And it's amazing to me to look back. Like I, right away, I had that that urge, that physical urge to drink, to continue drinking. And it's like I started off right where I left. You know, I, I I just kept going right where I had left off. It's it's to a T. It's in the book. It says it, and my story is right there. It's like wow, that's that's real. When they talk about you can go a year and a half, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, but if I pick up now five years, I mean, knock on wood, one day at a time, I'll be right back to where I was because it happened before, and. Um, you know, that night we're arguing, my girlfriend's crying. It's just, it's right back to a shit show. And uh, that was October of 2012 when we broke up in 2013, uh, March, I want to say, so a few months later. And we were together for like five years. Um, but I just, I look back on that, you know, like shame led to not drinking and then not drinking led to that period where I felt, okay, it's been enough time and I can safely drink again. And I can't safely drink no matter what. Um, and I know that now, but I didn't then. Uh, but sometimes you have to go through some things to figure some things out. Um, so in between 2013 and 15, I, I had lost a job that... I had worked at from 2010 to 2015. I was there for 50, five years. 
It was at a spa. It wasn't that glamorous, but it was a job and it was good enough. And I would drink uh, before the before the job and then sometimes show up to work. And basically, like my my employers would tell me, uh, Jorge, please stop drinking. Like, we really like you. Just stop. Like, that's all you got to do is just not come to work drunk. And I, I was like, okay, no problem. And I, I still would, right? Um, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. That's that's what's written in the book. And it makes a lot of sense because people can cry me a river or beg me or plead me, plead to me. And uh, it, it doesn't really matter because when I'm drinking, alcohol is what matters more than anything. That's it. That's been my experience. I may love you, but I'm going to love the bottle more than you. Uh, job, same thing. And so I lost that job. And um, one thing about me is I can clean up pretty well and get another job. So that's what happened. And I ended up getting another job in May, June of 2015. And uh, to me, looking back, like alcohol was always a solution. Good, bad, happy, sad. I'm going to drink. Get a job. Let's celebrate. Let's drink. Lost a job. I feel really bad. Let's drink. I'm bored. I'm going to drink. Um, so any time I'm going to drink and uh, when life presents difficult periods or something out of the ordinary, I'm most definitely going to drink. And so, uh, as I'd mentioned, my father was an alcoholic and he never admitted he was, and maybe it's not for me to say that he was, but he's passed away, rest in peace. So I feel, I mean, he drank like I did. Um, he just never admitted it. And that's okay. That's his choice. Um, and so in September of 2015, I got a call in the morning uh, from my mother that my father had shot himself. And that is kind of like a world-stopping moment for me. And in that, in that moment, I was in Oakland. I lived in Oakland and I had to go to San Francisco. And so on the way to the BART, this is early in the morning, I find out and I'm going to... Uh, to where we lived in downtown SF. And my immediate thought, like on the way to the bar, without really even thinking, I should say, uh, is to go to the liquor store and get a pint of rum. Like that, that's, and put in my backpack to go home. Not to drink it at that point, but just to have it because I know I'm going to need it. And I also packed my weed and a pipe to smoke. And it's like, those were my tools is what I'm saying. Like I, there's this major tragedy that I am experiencing in this moment. And that's my solution. That is it. And um, essentially what happened is he shot himself, um, but he didn't actually die. And so we, uh, he was on life support and we decided to take him off life support. And my family was there, but they went back to San Jose and it was just me and him. And I decided to stay. I, I, there was something within me. I was like, I'm not leaving him alone in the hospital to die. And so I was with him. And I, I also remember that crawling sensation inside my skin where I really wanted them to leave so I could drink. Like I really wanted to take that drink so desperately because I'd been hours, not only without one, but just I wanted that drink in that moment. And um, I will say this, like, this is when prayer and spirit really comes in deep for me. And because I'm sober or in recovery, it doesn't mean that my prayer 
or my spirit is stronger necessarily. It's just different. My connection to a higher power is definitely there. Excuse me, there. Um, and what I'm explaining, what I'm saying is that I was with my father on his deathbed. He's passing away. I'm with him. And I'm like saying these these words, this, these prayers that I don't even know because I didn't know prayers at that time. I didn't know the Lord's prayer, the serenity prayer. I didn't know any of those at the time because I wasn't in recovery or, or exposed to AA. But that's where for me, looking back, like prayer is deeper than words. I can say the words, but prayer is a feeling in my core of cores, like in my gut. And, and as I'll get to in just a little bit, that's that's eventually was where I was at with the turning point where I decided to really make a serious change. All that comes from like very deep within me. It's beyond my head. It's beyond my heart. And even though I was drinking, like, I don't regret that. I don't regret that moment because it was the solution for me at that time. And like I said, good, bad, happy, sad, I was going to drink. That's what I did. And so when life presented itself in major ways, you bet your ass I'm going to drink. And, you know, it is what it is. But I was with him when he passed away and he took his last breath. And to be with somebody in the room, when they take that very last breath and you feel their spirit above their body is very powerful. And, um, you know, I, I went home and I cleaned up his blood. And I, I was barefoot in the shower that he shot himself in. And I cleaned up his blood and... And that was a very cathartic thing for me at the time. Now, it was also extremely traumatizing and very tragic. And I had no other solution. I tried therapy a couple of times, but it really felt like I was ripping the Band-Aid off the wound. And so I started drinking even more than I already had. Um, and looking back, I, I can see like, yeah, that's that's what we do. That's what happens. You know, um, until I have another solution in my life, that's what I'm going to do. And so basically things got pretty bad and I ended up uh, burning a lot of bridges in um, in Oakland and I pulled a geographic. I moved to Texas where I lived with family for a little bit in Austin. And then that didn't work out. So I moved to Minneapolis. And this is where my recovery somewhat begins. Um my exposure to AA. Um, basically, I'd never been to Minneapolis. And within my first two weeks, I was thrown in detox twice in one week. <laughs> so it's like the equivalent in the East Bay of Cherry Hill, if you're familiar with that. Um, I was there twice in one week. And I'd never been to anything like that before. I was a, pa I was a blackout, pass out, come to kind of guy. And so one night I black out, I pass out, and then I come to in detox, and it's scary as hell. And um, I remember the, the first time I was there, and mind you, this is within two weeks of going to a new city, I'm in detox twice. Um, the, first, the first time I remember calling my brother, and there was a lot of sympathy, and, um, and then the second time I called him again, and there wasn't so much sympathy. And I remember him saying, like, again, and I remember that specifically, him saying again, like, man, he's never talked to me like that before. Um, and I remember I was lying on a cot 
And I was shaking and shivering and sweating all at the same time. If you've gone through it, if you've gone through the DTs, you know what it's like. If you haven't, I hope you never do, because it's really horrible. The alcoholic fever, the waves, it's very rough. And I'm going through that, and um, there's an announcement. And the announcement, and there's like 50 guys in this room, because there's like 25 cots on one side, 25 on the other. It's a huge facility. It's kind of like prison or jail, really. Um, and uh, there's an announcement, and they say there's an AA meeting happening in the community room. We strongly encourage everyone to go. And of course, nobody goes. And at that point, AA was a joke to me. I'd never, I'd kind of heard about it, and I knew about it, but it was kind of like something you laugh at. I was like, oh yeah, those people. I can point at those people because they have problems. I don't have a problem. I just drink. And I have some consequences, but I'm not, you know, that's them. But at that point, I'm telling you, like something happened. I don't quite know what it is, but a thought came into my head and it said, go. Just one word, two letters, that's it, go. And it's so weird because it, I really feel like it wasn't my thought. So that was very much like a spiritual experience for me. And um, I went to that meeting. And that's the first time I was 30 years old. And that's the first time I ever said the words, my name is Jorge and I'm an alcoholic. And even those words, those words, my name is Jorge and I'm an alcoholic. It was like a wave uh, was just like, a, I should say like a rock, a weight was lifted off my shoulders. It's so crazy to think back because I've said that so many times since then, right? Hundreds of times now. Um, but, but that, really broke a barrier that was years, decades even, in, in, in being built and reinforced and reinforced. But something was happening that moment where I just said it and I cried and I shared my story. And it was a H&I Hospitals and Institutions meeting at the detox center. And there were only like three of us at the meeting, um, but we were all there together. And I started going to meetings, but here's the thing though, um, I didn't get a sponsor and I didn't work the steps because I was still thinking self-sufficiency is strong enough. I'm a smart guy. I can figure this out. I'm not going to be vulnerable with you people. I'm not going to be vulnerable with anybody. Secrets are keeping me safe. They've kept me safe so far. And I'm not going to break that habit now, no matter what. And so I was going to meetings, but I was taking the half measured approach. And eventually I went back out because that's inevitable, right? That's what we do. I mean, until I really... I'm willing to go to any length. Alcohol still got my name, my number, and read my file, and it's right there waiting for me. And that's what happened. So um, uh, 45, 40 minutes really flies by. Um, basically, the insanity creeps up, and the insanity is real. And in my case, in Minneapolis, there was a lot of hospital visits, I had my stomach pumped, I'd go to the bar afterwards, right? Like, like that's kind of that crazy lifestyle. And I still didn't think there was really a problem. And I stopped going to AA by that point. I had tried it and I thought, you know, this isn't working. And I could talk a good game at, at the meetings, but I didn't know anything about the steps. I knew one, two, three, maybe. But if you asked me what the sixth step was, if you asked me what the 11th step was, I'd say, I don't, I mean, I'll, I'll figure it out later. That's what it was. Um, long story short, I came back to, the Bay Area in 2017, late 2017. Um, I was crashing on the couch of a friend 
and that relationship was a buddy of mine and and I definitely did not that did not work out um and so in 2000 in, in like April of 2018 around March April I've been working at the ferry building in the city it was a good job and again I drank that one away and um and one thing that happens to me is I uh alcohol really affects my mental health and my well-being it's substance induced depression that I experience and I can look back and see that I haven't really had serious depression at all in five years um but when I drink heavily there is something that happens where I've had periods in my life where I go through very serious depression there I say suicidal depression and it could be genetic absolutely um oh thank you I see that um but what basically happened was I had very serious suicidal thoughts in May of 2018. I was going to end my life. I even called certain family members and said goodbye. Um, and then I decided I didn't want to jump off the bridge. I was going to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. I didn't want to do that. I did not want to do that. But I also didn't really quite know how to live. I didn't want to die, but I didn't know how to live. But I knew that there was a solution out there. And... Um, that unmanageability that is talked about in step one, it's real. And for me, it is progressive just as much as alcohol is progressive. And so the unmanageability over my life, I can look back and be like, wow, that really sped up. I went from having a job for five years to having a job for months, to having a job for weeks, to having a job for days. And by the end, I couldn't even keep a job for a few days. And um, I had asked my family to bail me out, to give me rent money. And they said, no, they said, we love you, Jorge. We will support you emotionally spiritually but we can't support you financially because we're afraid you're going to drink it up and so in that moment my back was against the wall like never before now we're talking this is very early june i've got june paid but i can't afford july of 2018 rent and so i'm really at that turning point where i'm like okay i mean this is it like I'm either going to keep on drinking and be homeless on the streets of Oakland, living in Tent City, and I don't own a tent, or I'm going to go back to AA, and I'm going to actually work it. And so on June 9th, I mean, I had like my last drink. That was it. I knew like drinking that bottle of wine, like I felt something within me. And maybe it was that same place I talked about earlier, where it's like deep in my core, uh, my being. Um and I think in that moment, I was really admitting to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic, like we read about earlier. And that that was really it. So on June 10th, I went to an AA meeting and I I, I went to, I, I didn't really stop. I mean, I gave it my all. And so um, unfortunately, I'm running out of time a lot. I know, I, Laura, I'm running out, but I do want to share quickly on on some things that I've learned and and since that day and basically like i went to 200 meetings in 90 days i mean i i was like people said go to 90 meetings in 90 days i had nothing else to do recovery became a full-time job i checked into treatment because treatment was going to offer housing for me and i went to treatment in july um i got a temporary sponsor and what i liked one thing that michelle said earlier uh, that i related to was like i didn't really feel comfortable with that temporary sponsor but I did hear somebody speak and I absolutely related to what he said and he became my sponsor and we've been working together for five years now. And he's one of the most important people in my life by far. Um, and going to treatment, 
was incredibly powerful for me. Um, that's where I learned about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, how my thoughts affect my feelings and my behavior. They're all connected and feelings aren't facts. I can feel something and it may not be true. Working the steps, um, the, the steps are really the key. Um, for me, you know, steps one, two, and three to really make it concise. It's like, I can't, God can, I will let God, you know? Um, and and that's basically it. I mean, in step three, it says, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And I have a caring God. That's one thing that I firmly believe in. I am not going to be struck down by my God. My God does not judge me. My God is very loving and forgiving. And I have the care of a higher power. Um, I don't have enough time, unfortunately, to get into the steps, but I will say this. I have tools now and I have a different solution. I have a spiritual solution that for me is it. It is what I can do. Oh, thank you, Laura. I see that. Um, my solution, because life is going to present itself. Life comes and I have no control over it right? Um, it's no longer to drink. The obsession has been lifted. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. I have made amends to people. I have made amends to my mother, who I had called to tell her goodbye. I'll tell you something. My name is Jorge, and my father's name was Jorge. My mother's husband, my father, was named Jorge, and he took his life. Her son, Jorge, called her and said, Mom, I'm going to end my life. That's it. You know, I don't know that pain, that spiritual pain that I caused that woman when I did that. But I do know this. I made amends to her. And that's one of the most powerful moments of my life is making amends for that, especially in our relationship. And now what it's like, um, I can just say that things are different. The fog begins to clear up. It begins to clear up after 90 days, 30 days, 90 days, a year, two years. And at five years now. I can look back and see some things and maybe approach and respond to life a little differently than I did. Things get better. I have a pink cloud. They get worse. The rain cloud comes. Sometimes the pink cloud and the rain cloud are existing at the same time. And that's okay because I have tools to deal with life now. Like I said, I have a sponsor. I have sponsees. Um, I have people who I can call. I have prayer prayer and meditation they're 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 so powerful for me um i will say this and, and and wrap it up um i come from a line of of drinkers my father my grandfather um my father took his life as i've mentioned i had serious thoughts about that and now i feel like i am in a chain of recovery I have a sponsor, I have sponsees, my sponsees have sponsees. And so I become like, I, I one day at a time, one moment at a time, break that chain of alcoholism, break that pattern and begin recovery. And that's, that's a gift. I mean, that's a miracle really. And it's something that I don't take lightly. Um, and I try to give back to the best of my ability. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Because honestly, at 32 years old, five years ago when I got sober, I really didn't know what was going to happen. 
but I knew that I needed to do something or else um, things were going to get worse really fast. And they've gotten, they've gotten better. I'll say they're different and I'm really humbled and I'm really grateful. And I've met some of the most amazing and strong people I've ever met. And they call themselves alcoholics and they're in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am so grateful to be a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. And most of all, to be given a second chance at a first class life. So thank you for letting me share. And I'm really grateful to be here.